Behind the Law, the official podcast of West Tigers. Well, welcome to a very special edition uh, of Behind the Raw, the official podcast of West Tigers. It is episode seven. It's where we kick speculation into touch. It's where we give it to you straight and where we learn more about the people and the stories behind this great club. This week's guest holds a, a special place in the history of this club um, as a former coach of Western Suburbs Magpies and one of the nearest and dearest uh, to the late, great Tommy Rodonikas, who this week... Uh, passed away two years ago. He's a rugby league icon, our guest, who coached the Magpies between 1978 and 1981. He was Dalliem Coach of the Year in 1980 and also 1985. And after putting the coach's clipboard in the cupboard, so to speak, he forged a long and very successful career in journalism, reporting on his great love, rugby league, but also on, well, pretty much anything else happening in the world around him. It is an honour, uh, it is a privilege uh, to welcome Roy Masters to Behind the Roy. Thank you very much, Chris. I'm delighted to be here, especially as you've just taken me on a tour of these very, very splendid uh, headquarters of the, of the, the joint venture. Uh, I see um, saunas, um, I see lap pools, uh, I see steam rooms, I see audiovisual rooms, uh, gymnasium, wrestling mats. It's an incredible facilities and congratulations to the club. A little bit different. To way back when, huh? Magnificently. <laughs> we, in fact, at uh, Westerns at Lidcombe Oval, when it rained, we had we had to go to other facilities. Um, we had to jump in cars and drive around. Sometimes we'd uh, do ball work under the sheds at the Flemington Markets. <laughs> well, there you go. Uh, and you, you're going out for lunch later on. Yeah, yeah. I understand too. Out that way. You're in Melbourne. You've been down there for quite some time now. So thanks very much for jumping on the plane and and coming up to visit us here and. Um, I know you've bumped into some familiar faces uh, already. You're looking really, really well. You had the knees done a couple of years ago. I did in uh, 2021. Uh, I had uh, the left knee done and then five months later the right knee and uh, I was a victim of lockdown down there. You just couldn't move. And so consequently I thought I've got to get some value out of this. Um, you're only allowed out an hour a day. So I thought if I'm going to be locked in a house, I might as well be locked in a hospital. So, But it was inevitable. I just had to have the operation and I'd had also a bad case of what is called Ross River fever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, where a mosquito bites you and it invades all your joints. And I was incredibly arthritic. could hardly move. Uh, and since then, um, I've been out and about and even just this last week, uh, I was trekking in the um, the mountains to the west of uh, Victoria on the border with South Australia called the Grampian Mountains yep, uh, with yep. John Singleton and uh, Johnny Quayle wow. and uh, Jack Cowan, the bloke who owns uh, Hungry Jack's uh, franchise. Yep. And, of course, it wouldn't be a, a, a trek without Singer bringing along a couple of his Newtown <laughs> mates, which were Cole Murphy and uh, Phil Sigsworth. But we had six days of very solid trekking and the knees held up really well. <laughs> Well done. You talk about Newtown. Uh, we talk about Tommy Rodonikas. We're going to be chatting and remembering and reflecting on some of the great times that you had with Tommy a little bit later on. And, and that's one of the reasons that I, I invited you and wanted you to, to come up this week. So I'm really, really happy that you're here, mate, um, in a special week for Tommy and, and his his family and, and friends and this club. Just uh, on, on the West Tigers this year, and we know it's been a, a really – Difficult start to the season. None of us expected to be 0-5. Um, yeah, 
a tough loss at the weekend in Brisbane, but that is the way it is. It, as a coach, did you go through some lean patches yourself? No, I, I don't think we, we – I never started the season um, – 05 or even 03 or even 02 for that matter. Uh, even in 1980 when we lost all those players, we lost um, Boyd Brown and Diary to Manly, we lost Tommy and Graham O'Grady to Newtown. Uh, even then I think we started something like 3-0. Um, but what I believe any turnaround in a club, and you've been a player, the, the big turnaround comes through defence. So if, if, if any club, if any coach comes to a club uh, and he wants to turn around things quickly, or Tim, with all his vast experience, knows um, that uh, it's it's getting the players to get getting your defence right is the quickest way to turn things around. Mm. Well, let's hope let's hope it comes on Easter Monday. Uh, mm. That's the next challenge for the team um, mm. and the club. That should be a great day out there at, at a core stadium, uh, free entry for the kids and all sorts of things happening. We'll chat more about that a little bit later on as well. Well, Roy, this is how it works. I, I don't suppose you've had a chance to listen to uh, the first six episodes of Behind the Roar. It is uh, a new new series here. Uh, we open with a set of six, okay? So we're going to get to know a bit more about about you. Um, in the middle of the, the podcast, we're going to be, again, reflecting and, and talking about some of those yarns with about Tommy. Some we can talk about, some we probably... Can't mm. talk about. We'll have a, a few questions from the crowd as well. And then uh, the back end, when there's about five left on the clock, um, we'll throw a, a rapid fire, quick five at you. It's about your, some of your favourite times and moments and memories. So there is the whistle. So here's the first tackle on the opening set of six. Take us right back, Roy. Um, your upbringing. Where was home as a kid? Big family. Big family. I'm the eldest of seven. My father was a, um, a primary school teacher and so we moved around the north coast of New South Wales essentially. Um, and uh, wherever uh, my course, wherever my father went with the, with the stick of chalk, I went with him. Um, so I um, grew up in that area of the north coast and of course rugby league's the big game up there. My father, nonetheless, came from a very strong soccer background. Uh, his grand, his father, and uh, therefore my grandfather, and also my great uncle, uh, were in the Australian soccer team. In fact, the captain of the Australian soccer team was Judy Masters, uh, who has uh, recently been inducted into Soccer Hall of Fame. He was captain of Australia for many years, all through the the nineteen twenties, veteran of Gallipoli. But uh, soccer was not the game uh, played on the north coast of New South Wales. Rugby league was. And you always want to play where your mates are. And I wanted to play rugby league. So um, that's what we did. But yeah. being coming from those little small primary schools where Dad was a teacher, such as a little place by the name of Urbanville, you had to take the, like the six-stone or the five-stone seven team, which, yeah. uh, which we were in, Consisted of kids all the way down to uh, bloody second class, yeah. in order to get a thirteen players on the field. In fact, I can rem I, I ran in was up at a state of origin game once. You wouldn't remember him, but some of our listeners might. A very fiery fellow by the name of John Payne. He played uh, up in Queensland and played. He didn't actually play for Australia. He was selected for Australia and sat on the bench for Australia, but he never quite got on the field. He's very fiery prop. But in that in that um, uh, Urbanville Primary School five stone seven team that went down to the casino knockout, <laughs> there was me from in sixth class and Tiger Payne there in about third class, <laughs> and uh, we had to play the big boys, of course, and they walloped us. 
how things have changed. What position were you? I was a hooker. Yeah. Uh, although way back then I was a lock, but in primary school. Any good? I, a bit, no, not much good at all, mate. Because I, I became, after playing rugby union at university, um, I then began as school teacher at a very strong uh, rugby league school called Tamworth High School. Yep. And... Um, uh, because uh, when you're a school teacher, there's an ob- a male one anyway. You're an obligation on you to take a football team, yes. and and so I did, and I quickly learned, uh, Chris, that uh, I was a far better coach than a player. So I I surrendered that and spent the time um, playing, uh, c- coaching these kids, and Tamworth High, of course, went on and won multiple university shields and um, and and state knockouts. And um, it was a great education for me, which, of course, led in turn to me being selected uh, as the coach of the Australian schoolboys team that went to England, uh, which in 1972 was undefeated on that tour, and uh, which did produce some great players, some of whom, or many of whom, joined me later uh, in the Sydney first grade team. I refer to Les Boyd. Um, He was in that that team. So Craig Young, who I... um, who I coached also at uh, St George. Um, In that team also was Ian Schubert, uh, who I coached at Western Suburbs here along with Les Boyd. Big names you're throwing out. And uh, another player who was captain of the team was Royce Ailoff, who was captain of the Roosters at one stage. And um, so they were four players that came out of that Australian schoolboys team, including Robert Finch, for example, who played for the Premiership player with St George. Jack Jeffries, uh, who played here at uh, with Wests, and then followed me over to St George when I went there. So it was a very, very good uh, team, and, and then from that, of course, I came to Sydney. I was going to ask what was the pathway through to coaching first grade, and you've just pretty much given it mm. there. So it was back through your association at mm. Tamworth and then yeah. with the Australian Schoolboys. So we've got an affiliation with Tamworth, and we've been there for the last few years, and we're going there again, taking a home game to Tamworth. So... Um, We've got quite a following in that that region, and yeah. it's it's a great part um, of the world. After your coaching, Roy, then you experienced a very successful career in journalism. How did that happen? Well, when I was coaching West around about 1980, there was an afternoon newspaper battle going on between the Sun newspaper and uh, the Mirror. Mirror. Uh, the Sun newspaper had a strong foothold in the southern and eastern suburbs. Uh, whereas um, the Mirror basically had a stranglehold um, on the West and the North, particularly um, the inner West, around Parramatta, Penrith, that area where the Mirror was very strong. So the Sun newspaper people decided that why don't we get an, uh, form an identity with Western Suburbs League Club? They formed one with Parramatta too. Uh, but of the, the two clubs, uh, I was asked to, uh, to write a column, um, an afternoon, a Friday column, for the Sun newspaper, the, the idea was to uh, attract readers from the from away from the mirror towards the sun, and so consequently, I wrote those columns. And then in the uh, summertime, they thought, well, you know, you're not too bad at this. So they got me to write cricket and uh, and other summer sports. And then even when elections started, uh, to dip my nose into writing about political campaigns. And of course, I'd been to university, so I had a uh, you know a degree in economics, etc. So I was uh, even branched out into finance a little bit. Mm. So it was basically again through rugby league, and then in the sun, and then when the sun finally folded as a result of uh, afternoon newspapers no longer being profitable, 
um, then I moved to the Sydney Morning Herald. Oh, you, you have a way with words, and I remember reading your columns many, many times and you know, so different to other journos and so poetic and creative and um, some of it went over my head, I'll, <laughs> I'll be honest, but I, I always enjoyed the approach that you brought yeah. to sport. I didn't read the politics pages, it wasn't yeah. for me. Tommy Rodonikus, we're going to talk more about him a bit later on, as I said that. What was it about Tommy that made him such a popular character? Well, he, he's always the, – the, the rank and file people have always identified with him. The, the, the working class people, they see him as, uh, as, as one of them and uh, they feel as though he's going to treat them equally, as though he's never going to look down on them. But if a, if a peculiar thing has happened in Australian life since the days then when he was a player – there's a. I believe that there's this polar. I was talking to Singham about this on on our trip through the Grampians. There's a polarisation taking place in Australian society where you've got people on the right and people on the left. Now the people on the right believe very very strongly in on in free speech, and they hate political correctness. Well, that's Tommy. He hated political correctness, and he worshipped free speech, and he's he's. Long-time partner Trish would say to him, you can't say that, Tommy. And he'd said, but it's true. Can't I say it? It's true. So therefore I'm going to say it. But at the same time, the people on the left who sort of like to support uh, people who are disadvantaged, people who are struggling, people who are in trouble, they identify him because they can see Tommy as a, as a man of the left as well. So in, a, in an increasing polarised Australia, uh, he is accepted, was worshipped by both sides. He began, don't forget, he began as a migrant, um, a son of a migrant family in Cowra. Um, father was um, Lithuanian, mother was Swiss. Uh, so number of kids in the family, so many that they uh, had to farm him out for a year. The local police sergeant in Cowra took him, took him on to look after him. And uh, I remember he turned up at the policeman's uh, house with uh, a shoebox um, and a pair, and all he said is, all I've got is a pair of sand shoes and two shillings. That's all he had. And the policeman looked after him. And then he he, he became, um, he got selected in the New South Wales um, primary school team to yeah. play Queensland yeah. as a second rower, I think. Yeah. And, uh, and then, of course, uh, Rugby League gave him an opportunity to throw away the disadvantages of, of being a, a relocated child of a migrant family. You're living in Melbourne, as I say, these days, um, and you have been for, for some time. What's a typical day look for, like for you now? Well, I, uh, I have a close association with the storm these days. Uh, I'm a great person in, in favour of rugby league expanding out of New South Wales and Queensland. I don't want it to be just a two-state game. I want it to be a three-state or four-state game. So I, I go, go down to the storm perhaps once a week um, but I also, um, my wife and I have ten grandchildren, eight of whom live in Melbourne. Keep you busy. So uh, I, I spend a lot of time with them, you know, taking them to uh, the swimming pool or taking them to preschool. Um, uh, and then um, I like to walk around in the park uh, and get about 10,000 steps in. So, and then I like to sit down sometimes in the afternoon and um, help start a column. It might take me a couple of days slowly to write a column, something that strikes me. 
and like to end the day as I have for the last 60 years with a couple of beers. Nice, nice. We'll chat, we'll chat about Craig Bellamy a bit later on because I know you're, you're quite tight with him. Away from sport and writing, um, what are some of your other pastimes? And, and where did, where did the, the love of writing come from? Well, the love of writing really came from my mother. My mother, Olga Masters, was one of Australia's foremost uh, writers. Uh, she didn't begin writing until she was in her mid-50s and she published um, five books, um, all of which have been highly re regarded. She is a sort of a, a hero of many female writers. She wasn't a feminist, but um, many people see her as an early feminist in the sense that she was forging a path. She didn't begin writing until... Um, Basically, the, the, the last of the children left home. Uh, she once said that um, my, my books, my children are my books. Um, but um, some of her work um, is, is highly regarded, such as The Home Girls, uh, Loving Daughters, uh, Amy's Children. Uh, these are highly regarded titles in, in Australian in literature. So it was from her that I got that love of words, uh, essentially. And in fact, all my brothers and sisters have followed in a similar path. Me being the eldest son of a school teacher, I was basically had to take the uh, you know the public service path and go off and get your degree at university, son, before you can do anything else. Mm. But all the others, uh, they were able to take more adventurous paths. And so I've got the second eldest uh, brother, Ian. Um, he's living in Los Angeles. He uh, has his own radio show over there. Yeah, yeah. Um, my brother Quentin now lives in Spain. He was a very prominent um, film producer, uh, made some great movies and starring Joan Collins. Yeah, wow. And then there was the next set, then there's Chris Masters, the, the famous Four Corners journalist yeah. who's... Uh, Works have led to about three royal commissions in different states and currently involved in the big Ben Robert Smith defamation case at the moment. My sister Sue was uh, executive producer of Australian Story. Wow, it's a very uh, successful so, family. Yeah, all, yeah. all coming out of a little little country-type town in the Coast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Population uh, of... Well, about 200. 200. Half <laughs> <laughs> of the masters. Yeah. Roy, um... That's the set of six. That's the opening set of six. This could be a long game. We might go into extra time here. Brighton's lawyers are the lawyers you know and trust. If you require legal representation, then why look anywhere else? Call Brighton's lawyers on 1800 848 848. Brighton's lawyers, we do support you in your time of need. Let's talk some serious stuff. Um, we're going to talk more about, about Tommy. Before we do that... Um, Let's go way back to those days at, at the Magpies when you were the head coach, 1978. You were there for four, four years. Uh, you had Tommy and some other very larger-than-life characters, um, Dallas Donnelly, um, Joe Cool, Les Boyd and others. Snake O'Grady. Some big names, some big personalities. Let, firstly, with, with Dallas Donnelly, and, and I, I saw you on a Matty John's podcast not that long ago. And I, I think you were trying to equate what Dallas might earn if he was in the modern game today. Yeah. What type of a player was he? 
Well, Dallas was a traditional front row forward, and around that, about that time, um, I reckon the front row was probably pretty close to the most important person on the field. I've, well, the halfback was coming into being as the most important person. I, I now believe the fullback's the most important person on the field. With left and right defences, you know, the fullback is the one that often makes the difference. But it was around about that time, for example, if you retired as a player um, and you wanted to go and still continue on in the bush, the bush clubs were all wanting front row forwards. Um, so it was a five-metre rule, take the ball up, a lot of toughness was required. Scrums had to be competitive. And he and Dallas, I'd known Dallas uh, as a schoolboy. In fact, I'd coach him in schoolboy teams because he was at Gunnedah and I was at Tamworth and they were only 48 miles different. Yeah. Um, but he was also a champion swimmer as a kid. And um, but uh, he was also very he was a five eight at school, and but he certainly grew very quickly. And um, but like I saw him kick a field goal once right in front of me. He was pretty talented for a big prop. He had good distribution skills. Take took the ball up. Look, <coughs> he played for Australia. Um, he could have um, he could have been a better player uh, if I could have kept him off the syrup. Like the syrup. He just loved the syrup. And he suffered from epilepsy too, which meant, of course, that he would have a seizure every now and again, particularly if he'd forgotten to take his tablets. And that's, of course, what killed him in the end. He drowned in the surf at, at, at uh, Byron Bay. Talk us, um, Les Boyd, you had a particularly strong bond with Les. Yeah, well, I love Les Boyd and still do, and he would call me once a week. And um, I had him, as I said earlier, on the Australian schoolboys trip. I brought him to, uh, to West's. I saw him do things on a field that I've never seen other people do since. I saw him chase down Russell Fairfax once. Russell Fairfax was going to score a, score a try. There was nothing more certain. But somehow he just almost as though he dropped from the sky, landed behind him, picked him up and dropped him down on a sixpence. I mean, it was a phenomenal player. Joe Cool, just a natural well, talent. Just a natural talent, a speed. He, he, you wouldn't think he was running fast, but he was getting close, carrying the ball. He was getting further and further away from everybody. He had a beautiful, satiny stride. You win the minor premiership in your first year at Western Suburbs, 78. And then you bow out in straight sets, I think it was yeah. the Sharks and, and, and Manly. What went wrong? Well, I think basically that we overachieved, um, that um, we had been playing pretty much on top gear the whole season. Uh, that these other sides, such as Cronulla and Manly, they had a, two or three more gears to move up once they got to the semi-finals. Plus, I don't think, looking back, we handled it really well. Um, we had a week off after winning the minor premiership, probably spent too much time on the syrup. And um, so, uh, and of course, we hadn't ever played at the, uh, the SCG. We'd never been there before. No. So that was a bit of a shock to us. But there was also a referee around at the time that your father might know a little bit about, Hollywood, Hollywood Hartley. And uh, to this day, Graham O'Grady, in that game, final against Manly, um, he kicked the kicked the ball, went high in the air, regathered it, put it down over the over the line, and um, Hartley said, uh, "You're offside." He said, but "How can I be offside? I kicked the ball." He you know, you're offside. I mean, that that whole game turned on that. Well, we had no bunker back then, no. did we? Um, okay, we have to talk about the face-slapping incident. Yeah. And that, that's an iconic piece of, of, of vision that still 
gets played today. Um, and I know you, out of that, became almost defined as the great master motivator. Give us the backstory to that, though, Roy. How did that all come about? Well, it was 1979, and um, f- um, the uh, 60 Minutes had approached us to, um, to follow us around, and um, they conned us a little bit. They, they sort of said that you, you can't be doing this well unless you're on drugs. Okay. And uh, we were incensed by that. Um, the only drug we were on was life. <laughs> And um, and winning, and so we gave them entree to everything, and it was a day where we um, were playing a team pretty much down the ladder, and sometimes when players it was a cold, windy, wet day. It was at Lidcombe Oval. It was a Sunday afternoon, and the players came into training, and they were dressed up in the big, you know, UGG boots and rain and Canadian jackets in those days, mm. and. I could see they didn't want to play football. There was no way in the world that they were they, they had their mind. They they'd rather, they wanted to be home watching bloody TV in front of a fire. <laughs> so I we had a mad trainer at the time, a fellow by the name of Dave Dickman. <clears throat> I said these guys aren't ready to play. Get them going, Dave. Sort him out. So he divided them up. He was a he came from the martial arts. He was a very good trainer, but very hard. And he divided them up into pairs and he said, okay, start slapping each other's faces. Well, away they went. And uh, uh, two two players, I can't remember, certainly Ray Brown was one of them. I've forgotten who the other one was. It could have been Les Boyd. They really got into a stink with each other there in the in the <laughs> dressing room and I had to actually pull them apart. <laughs> Tommy um, seemed to revel in it too. Oh, Tommy loved it. Absolutely adored it. It got him going and, of course, they they – then went out and won the game easily. But I, to this day, I remember thinking to myself, uh, oh God, this is going to be... Because uh, I knew enough of how the media worked to know that... Because uh, I heard Ray Martin, who was the... Uh, the 60 the, Minutes. The, the 60 Minutes yeah. guy. Right. I heard him turn to one of the cameramen, did you get that? Meaning the, the scenes. And I thought, oh, here we go. This gold. Is, there's gold. Gold for, yeah. gold for the media, but not for the football team. Oh, anyway, of course, it was an enormous oh the the drama on the on the uh, the following Monday night, which was twenty four hours later, because uh, the New South Wales Rugby League all the delegates met in at Phillips Street, and one by one, delegate after delegate stood up and you know how dare this get on our TV screens? This is a disgrace to our great code. <laughs> Only one club said nothing. And sat there, mm. and that was St George, and I never forgot that. So when they made were, when they yeah. made me an offer later, I thought, well, that's a club I want to go to. Yeah. But Manly, of course, they stood up and they said, "What a terrible, horrible thing!" You know, all our lovely little children in the northern beaches—they're going to be offended uh, by these yeah. sights. Well, of course, Les Boyd, the next, at the end of that year, went over to Manly and he played with them and. They came out against us one day and they had blood and gore and everything coming out of their faces. Oh. And I said, Les, what happened in the Manly dressing room? Oh, he said, we did a bit of face slapping. <laughs> there you go. There you go. What's good for you is good yeah. for us. Uh, unorthodox, let's call it yeah. Call it that. Can you imagine that in the NRL dressing rooms these days? I, I just don't think uh, that would happen. Uh, you talk about Manly. Um, so 1980, so you, you lost, and you've mentioned it already, you lost... 
some very, very good players. Joe Cool goes to Manly. Ray Brown. Les and Ray all go to Manly. Tommy goes and joins Singer. And Graham O'Grady goes as well. And Graham O'Grady goes to Newtown. These weren't just your footballers. These were very close mates of yours by now, right? Oh, absolutely. So yeah. I'm, I, I, there's a lot less loyalty in rugby league these days, right? Mm. The golden dollar pretty much dictates everything. But back then, a lot well, of it was about loyalty, wasn't it? Well, I can remember Les Boyd called me and uh, he said, will you come over? Uh, Judy's cooking a big uh, roast dinner. This is at Strathfield. I live at Penrith. Bring your family over. He and I went for a long walk um, before the uh, before the dinner. Um, my wife and kids were back there at at, um, at Les's place. We walked and uh, he said, "Okay, Manly have made me a big offer. Um, they're going to and uh, what do you reckon is the price that I should take from Manly, given the fact that West are giving me twenty five grand." And I said, well... And where did that rank back then? Was that sort of top dollar? No, it was top, certainly top dollar at West, but yep. it wasn't top dollar anywhere else. No. And I said, mate, if they give you 39, I, 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 39, I don't know why I said 39, but 39, probably 50% on or something. Uh, I, um, I, you know, if, you, if, if they offered you that, I, I, I wouldn't. No, no, I said 40. I said round figure 40. And uh, I said, if they give you 40, I, there's no way in the world I can stop you. You've got to go. You've got to yeah. go. So I went back to work the next day. I was a teacher out at Doonside High School and Red Atlantis rings me. He said, Manly offered me 39. I said, oh, you beauty, you're coming, you're staying. <laughs> he said, no. He's, I, I said to him, I want 40. And he said, oh, you got 40. So there you go. they all went for 40. Uh, and, um, of course, Tommy... Uh, <laughs> Tommy and I... How did Tommy raise it with you that he was heading off? Well, to Tommy that? rang me up. He said, mate, I was Zernside teaching. And he said, um, it was coming up to three o'clock. And he said, the singer wants to uh, to uh, meet me in at Phillips Street. And not, well, and he, no, uh, uh, he wants to meet me in the city. So I actually drove him in, parked the car, and I went to the New South Wales League Club to have a beer while he was doing his business with Singer, which was probably in some lawyer's office or somewhere. Yeah. And I thought that all he, he came back with this with this piece of paper with a contract. It wasn't a formal contract. It was mm. just a written piece of paper. And he, it was his signature on it and Singo's signature on it. And and he said, I've signed for 50 grand. Not on a beer coaster. No, on a piece, a piece of, just a standard piece of paper. And 50 grand. And... And I said, but Tommy, I, I thought you were just going to take his offer to get more money out of West's. And he said, yeah, yeah. I said, this is a bloody formal contract. You, you can't get out of this. It's, I know Singer. Singer's going to have all the lawyers in the world. So he didn't think he was locked in. Well, he, he half and half. Mm. Well, they, we then had this massive blue on the floor of the league club. <laughs> oh, yeah, Kevin Humphreys, who was the boss of the league, had to come over and pull us apart. So how old would you have been then, roughly? Uh, 79, uh, I would have been 30, uh, 38. Oh, yeah, okay. I, yeah. I mean, I was, I was fighting fit. Yes. Yeah, and we were we were into it. And and he was starting to cry, Tommy. <laughs> yeah, that's how, that's that's That was league back then. 
Uh, Ray Brown, terribly disappointed he left because uh, he, um, he'd he only been with us one year and played for Australia and then mm. went. Uh, Joe Cool, he'd been – he'd also – Joe Cool had also been there about – that was about his seventh, eighth year there, so you mm. couldn't really stop him going. But Snake left too, but Snake then came and rejoined me at St George years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, let's remember Tommy a bit more then, shall we? And no one better to ask than yourself, Roy uh, – because you were, you were so, so close. So as I said, it is two years on since we lost Tommy um, on the 7th of April. So, and of course, he played number seven. 7th of April, played number seven, died at the age of 70. This is episode seven of Behind the Rule. Yeah, and uh, his wife, Trish, takes great belief in numerology and all of those things yeah. yeah and yeah. the se- seven there's the seven seas the seven days of the week the seven sacraments uh there's a lot of magic about the seven um some stories we can't tell clearly mm-hmm. others we can um and some i don't a lot of these I, I don't know you've given me a few bullet points tommy and the broken thumb well, that is an interesting story. That um, we were we were going through a bit of. We might have watched a couple of games, but never more than about three, I think. And the, we were playing midweek games as well. Now, even though, as I told you, the sixty minutes people came and reckoned we were on drugs. Well, we could have been if I'd taken notice of Tommy because he said to me, mate, you've got to get us some amphetamines. I said, what are they? He said, the, the pills that make you go better. And I said, well, I did know enough about them to know that they gave you a false sense of your own ability and that they were harmful to the body. And I know, so I went to the club doctor, his name was Bob McInerney, leading gynaecologist, can you believe, in Sydney. What are we going to do? Tommy wants amphetamines. We shall give them placebos, he said. Placebos are... Yeah. Sugar tablet or something. Sugar tablets. Yeah. Well, these were orange-coloured sugar tablets. Well, Tommy took so many that froth, orange froth was coming out of his mouth. Anyway, they all they all had these sugar tablets and, of course, that were playing manly. That's why we had to, we had to beat manly at Lidcombe Oval. Well, we're leading 5-0. Tries are worth three points in those days. And uh, just before half-time, Terry Randall runs over the top of Tommy. It's 5-all. And I'm furious because one thing I noticed in psychological motivation, etc., that some players can cop a bake and some can't. Well, Tommy could cop it. And what's more, when you ripped into Tommy, which really I did because he was such a good player... You can see the gelling effect on the rest of the team. God, this is serious. He's ripping into Tommy. You know, we better get ourselves going here. Well, I ripped in. And, of course, then the second half proceeded and we won the match pretty easily. But then he came in and he had a grotesquely broken thumb and that it had happened just before half time, and that's when he missed Randall. Couldn't, couldn't, couldn't grab onto his jumper with his that's broken why. thumb. And, uh, of course, I felt bad about it. So off he goes to hospital and has his thumb put in plaster. And But he always rang me after big wins and he would ring about 7 o'clock in the morning. He said, mate, he said, uh, that was uh, that was a great victory. He said, uh, those bloody bombs you gave us, those amphetamines, what do you call them, <laughs> amphetamines or something. They did the trick. He said they did the trick. He said, I haven't been able to sleep a wink all night. <laughs> <laughs> he said, watched every movie, cut through a carton of cans, haven't been able to sleep. 
Anyway, the, but I've got to tell you this, Chris. You tell a lie and it'll come back to bite you. <laughs> what do you think happened next week? The players all wanted the bombs again. Yes. Well, I had Briggs, big Bruce Gibbs in the side, the sloth, giant fellow, with three toes on one foot. That's what we call him, the sloth. <laughs> and sloth was hopeless in the first half of this particular match. Did, did, did absolutely nothing. And, but he's one bloke you couldn't bake in front of everybody. So I wheeled him around into the toilet area, the old toilet area at Lincoln Oval there. I said, Sloth, what's wrong with you? You haven't made a tackle. You're last of the scrum. You're arguing the referee. Even planes are flying across Lincoln Oval and you're looking at them. I said, what's the trouble? He said, the bomb hasn't started to work yet. <laughs> Take another chuckle pill. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Um on a, on a serious note, as a player, and so I, I think back, so I was only quite young back then, you know, um, probably about 10 years of age, and I remember, I remember bits and pieces of Tommy, right? What do you remember most about him as a, as a, as a player? Well, it was his essential toughness. Uh, I mean, you had when you had Tommy, you had seven backs, but you also had seven forwards because he, he played like a, a forward. He could tackle front on like a forward. Uh, he had every basically every skill, very much underrated in terms of his skill. He couldn't, you know, wasn't a good kicker of the ball, but nobody was pretty much back mm. then. Mm. Um, but uh, very, very, very tough. I mean, he hated losing. Um, and I talked to modern day players. I oh, sorry, I talked to my players of my generation. They talk yeah. about modern day players, mm. and the one thing they can't cop with modern day players is uh, laughing as they walk off the field. Yeah. No, and I, I, I get that as well. Mm. You know, I, I guess things have changed so, so much and opposition teams are all mates away from footy these days. But but you're right, you know, if you've, if you've been beaten and even if you've been beaten heavily, it is probably sometimes as a supporter hard to cop seeing them brushing it off because the fans feel it. They're, they're, well, they're they, it. they put an enormous emotional investment into it. They're paying yeah. their money to go in. And here's, yeah. a, here's a bloke on 700 grand, lost a game, hasn't yeah. made a tackle, walking off with a big grin on his face. Yeah. So I'll tell, you, I'll tell you a story of your podcast. I, I wasn't the coach then, I might say, but there were two. Uh, Tommy was having a shower after a match and Phil Franks, who was a 5'8", uh, he was in the shower with him. And in the last second, uh, West were beating Canterbury <clears throat> by um, you know, by only a couple of points, mm. and there was only the clock was ticking down right down to to, uh, to time to, to the end of the match, and all Phil really Tom passed the ball to to Phil, and all Phil really had to do was run at the line, <clears throat> and he passed it to the centre who um, Bernie Lowther, uh, a Canterbury who was an international with uh, New Zealand, intercepted the ball, rang the length of the field, scored between the posts, won the match. And they're having a shower afterwards and, and Tommy has a shot at Phil Franks about the intercept pass and they're, 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 a fight begins under the shower. Yeah. They're ripping into each other, smacking away at each other under the shower. I mean, that that was the passion that people had about uh, losing matches in those days. He was just such a competitive character, wasn't he? And, and, and you know, a lovable larrikin. Everyone, everyone warmed to him, didn't they? Yeah. Um, did like a shandy or two. Oh, he did, but he wasn't the wasn't the massive drinker that uh, Dallas was. No. Uh, in fact, um, I can we on one occasion I said, "Boys, you're drinking far too much. Uh, come on, um, uh, don't order a beer." This is up at the railway hotel. You're not allowed to order a beer after ten o'clock. <laughs> Thinking most sort of a Tuesday or a Thursday night uh, training, probably Tuesday. Yeah. Yes, 
Can't have a beer after 10 o'clock. Can't order a beer after 10 o'clock. Well, what does Dallas do at one minute to 10? Orders three schooners. <laughs> he drank two he's old. And I remember Tommy walked up, grabbed two of the schooners, walked out, t- tipped them down in the gutter out the front of the lid come out. And Dallas is watching these black suds of beer flow down in the gutter. So he's nearly, nearly crying. <laughs> dear, dear. Um, in the end, in the end, um, and he was... He was ill for quite some time, wasn't he? He was. I got a phone call from Trish. She said, you better come up to see him. So I flew up to Melbourne, from Melbourne to see him. And uh, he was sitting there, slumped in a chair. He just turned, gave me a beautiful little smile. But then dropped his head and he said, you've got to die sometime. And um, so the next day we went off to see the doctor who was his only chance of prolonging his life. So we went in and the three of us and we sat down and the doctor uh, had to make a decision whether to put him on this trial which was called immunology, which is massively expensive. But um, yeah, the government will pay for a trial for certain selected people, but you have to be chosen. And he started to ask questions about Tommy's medical history and every time he asked a question Trish would say yes he's had 300 milligrams of that he takes them twice a day uh, any side effects yes he's come out with a rash on his big toe I mean mm. she just knew everything so the doctor could quite clearly see that there's he's got a nurse here he's got somebody that's going to really help the off away from the hospital treatment as well and then he turned, what, and what are you doing? He didn't have a clue who I was. And she said, oh, he was his coach. He's come all the way up from Melbourne. He's worried about him. Uh, he's a journalist with the Sydney Morning Herald. You can probably see the doctor thinking to himself, well, this is an iconic Australian yeah. person. The, the doctor actually was a fellow of um, uh, Arabic um, yeah. um, origin. So he, but a wonderful, uh, and a wonderful, wonderful doctor. Um, they became very close friends. And... Um, he um, so uh, you could probably see that if the trial was a success, um, there, there'd be a little bit of good publicity yeah. for yeah, his yeah, yeah. for his program and and as they should be. Yeah. And he agreed he agreed to put him on the trial. Now I remember afterwards sitting down the pair of us. Trish went off to get the car because he couldn't walk too far, and we sat down together. And it was almost like it was way back in nineteen seventy eight when we're talking about match plan to beat aside. And we went through the whole interview with the doctor, step by step, answer by answer. Because when you're in those pressure situations in front of a doctor, you you you, you miss a bit. You miss a bit. The doc, the patient does because he's I'm going to die, you know. And and um, your mind just can't concentrate. But uh, but I was able to, and we we went through the whole thing, and we got another two years uh, life out of him as a result of that trial. Yeah, yeah. and two. Precious years. Two precious oh, years, two yeah. precious years. His ashes are at come right? Yes, um, his ashes are spread there. It was a, uh, it was an afternoon, a Saturday afternoon. It was actually, it was before West Tigers home game um, against Melbourne, which would have been the beginning of the 22 season. Yep, yep. And... Um, Tommy, so the people that went there were um, Les Boyd, Graham O'Grady, uh, Rick Wade from, from Wests, uh, my son Sean and his only son Tommy, who's named after Tommy Radonikus, mm, yeah. and, um, and Trish, of course, 
uh, and, and of course Tommy's son, Lincoln, and his wife. So we formed a little circle in the middle of Lincoln Oval and we spread the ashes. And as you know, later on this year, the grandstand, the Tommy Radonikus grandstand, will be officially right. named in his honour. Absolutely, yeah, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. West Tigers members and fans, let's get ready to make some noise in our next home game against Parramatta Eels on Monday the 10th of April. West Tigers have arranged a special ticket offer with free entry for children 15 years and under. Visit West Tigers website for full terms and conditions of this free ticket offer. The Easter Monday Showstopper. Come on, show your stripes. Uh, okay, time now, uh, Roy, uh, a couple of questions from the crowd. And you can do this each week, by the way. The best way to do it is on Instagram. Um, follow us, like us on Insta. Uh, West Tigers BTR is the handle. Just direct message us um, for the questions for next week. So we've got Paddy Richards and we've got Chrissy Lawrence joining me in next week's edition of Behind the Raw. Maybe another guest too, but that's uh, still to be announced. All right, Roy. Um, We've got a couple have come through here. Carolyn Busfield has says, Roy, if you were to do one thing to help these players, that's our West Tigers players now, um, to help these players play as a unit, what would you do? I would concentrate on defence. I wouldn't. Uh, I would leave the ball uh, on the sideline. Uh, I would um, put the players in various defensive positions, particularly against uh, a state cup team. Uh, and I would drill and drill drill defence. Uh, I'd even break them up into smaller groups, seven against six, and situations like that where they had to defend against overlaps. So that what you're trying to do is build trust, Chris. You're trying to build trust where the fellow in the middle of, say, three knows precisely what the bloke on the left of him and the bloke on the right of him is going to do. Uh, you're not second-guessing what your teammate's going to do. Drill in those defensive drills till, till it becomes almost automatic to them. Second question from the crowd, Roy. Thanks for that. Um, Robert Norris, he says, Roy, as a coach, what were your three top achievements? I would say three teams for St George in the grand final in 85, uh, West being Western Suburbs Coach of the Century and uh, I suppose um, winning the um, Coach of the Year uh, uh, title three times, I suppose, yeah, as opposed to... It's a handy list of achievements. Yeah, well... No. That uh, that great win uh, for the Magpies in that seven. Although 1980 was probably a, a pretty good year in the sense that we lost all those great players, which we discussed yeah. earlier in the podcast. And we turned around with players like Alan Neal and Terry Lamb and, and, and Paul Merlo and Bobby Cooper yeah. and people that um, nobody expected to, to do well. And well, I think we came in third or second well, or third that year. And see where Barbar kicked on yeah. late, later in his career. One final question from the crowd, but it's me. I mean, I'm sitting in the crowd. I, I get to do this because I'm in this chair. So much has, has changed in the game since when you were involved so heavily. Uh, we talk about the rules changes. We talk about the more money and the broadcast rights. There's no longer the BIF, um, a litigious society, the HIA, all that sort of stuff. Is the game as entertaining today, do you think, as it was back then? I think it is, particularly uh, particularly the use of the wingers. I mean, some of the spectacular wow. tries that they score these days uh, as a result of the taking the corner post out as a, as a part of the field of play. Mm. 
Uh, I think it is spectacular and uh, I don't think that the players are necessarily as good uh, one-on-one defenders as they were in my day, nor do I think that a lot of them um, can draw and pass and put a bloke through a hole as they did in my day. But overall, they are more skillful. The one thing I would love to see change is um, making players uh, more committed uh, to the club that they're at and not able to leave uh, 12 months in advance. I mean, I, I, I just terribly offended, for example, when Brandon Smith, for example, signed a contract with the Roosters and talking about how he's going to win a competition with Arena Roosters jumper when he still had 12 months of his to go at, um, at the Storm. Uh, and uh, that's the one thing that I, I hate. I know that players will still put in, but sending a terrible message when you can sign a contract with another club 12 months while you're still with your existing club. Well, like you did with Les Boyd, you, Craig might have said to the Cheese, look, if they give you 899000 you've got to go. But uh, I understand what you're saying. It's, it's just a different, it's a totally different ball game now. Um, but you've just brought back some wonderful memories, Roy. And, and again, it's been great having a chat with you. Okay, Roy, there's the big clock up there at the SCG. Um, or at Lidcombe, actually. Five minutes left on the clock. They obviously don't do that anymore. So a rapid fire five questions your way um memories moments all that sort of stuff these are quite tricky too don't sit on the fence sheensy absolutely sat on the fence a couple of others have as well scando i think was a bit on the fence on a couple of them question one the best player you've ever seen let's boy bang straight away tell me more why yeah, I mean, you have spoken about him. Well, he had uh, all the skills. He, uh, I, I can remember watching a, a, a test match between Australia and Great Britain and uh, it was uh, a deciding test in 1978. Um, I'm sitting in my lounge room. Uh, he, the, the pommies were... He just picked the ball up, burst through the pommies two or three times and, and just won the test on his own. I remember Frank Stanton, who was a coach, Australian coach, ran out of the field actually and escorted him off the field at half-time. He was so impressed with his individual efforts and Cranky Frankie didn't do that too often. My goodness, you were so quick on that and uh, you have seen so many Well, you know, there's other ones time. like Michael O'Connor who had all the skills, even Bill Ashurst who was out at Penrith who was in incredible skills. Um, what about uh, the modern day players uh modern day well billy slater uh, but i also like cameron smith because uh he could just no i've never seen anybody well, control he's your fondness for melbourne rubbing <laughs> off on you <laughs> i've never seen anybody control a game like cameron smith no, true your fondest moment in rugby league well i'll sit on the fence in so far as at west it would probably be um name being named um coach of the century and the west team of the century i that, that was a massive honor to me that meant a tremendous amount to me but at St George, it would be uh, those that day that I stood out at the SCG in 1985 and we had three teams in the grand final. Wow. That was a massive All day. All three grades. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And you coached 23s at West, didn't you? I yeah, did. We won the before. premiership here in, in, in 1977. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm breaking away from the favourite five here, but just touching, we didn't touch on, on the Dragons. And let you were with some wonderful characters at that club too. Well, particularly Rocket Reddy, Craig Young, guys like that. Yeah. Um, they were. Uh, I still have. I still have a lot to do with Craig, and um, speak to him regularly because he was. Uh, and Rocket, don't see as much of Rocket these days, but he was a great trickster. He was good to have around the club because he. Um, <laughs> you never knew what was happening when Rocket was there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, who, in your opinion, Roy, is the best coach the game has ever seen? 
I think Jack Gibson, because of the fact that uh, before him, the coaches were a sort of ex-players who tell the players to run around the block a few, uh, uh, around around the oval a few times and play a game of touch football, and uh, they were pretty much subservient to selectors as well. Um, they were there were some great ones, of course, such as Clive Churchill, etc. But they did not have the prominence that they have today until Gibson came along and insisted that a coach be paid a dollar more than the highest paid player and uh, pushed them in the direction of being full-time, use of videos. Uh, He was also the one that brought out the tractor tyres for them to tackle. He was the one that basically said, listen, um, defence is equally important to attack in a game. Whereas before, almost all training was just um, ball work. Um, he, 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 he dropped players who were, um, only made four tackles. They might have scored three tries, but they only made four tackles in the forwards and so they got dropped. He, he elevated defence. Yeah, absolutely, Jack. I mean, they were sort of my day, 81, 82, 83, and I remember you know, Jack out there and they were training at Granville Park of all places and Jack was there in his, his big trench coat and... Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, you're very close with Craig Bellamy um, mm. of a modern-day coaches. He's very astute. Well, I, I think he uh, – and I've seen the evolution of him from about 2004 when he came to the Storm to now. You, you never get everything with a coach. There's always got to be some little weakness that he has, but uh, I reckon Craig's the total full all-round coach now. He's, he, he began with technical excellence, making players better school-wise mm. – um, but since then, he's moved. Uh, his, his, his strategies and tactics have always been pretty good. Mm. Um, but now he's also a very prominent public speaker. He can command fifteen thousand dollars and speak to the board of BHP. I mean, he's mm. he's uh, he's a he's as a man who is probably the greatest technic technical coach we've ever seen. He's, he's now the, the the full package. Other than Tommy, the greatest character you've come across in the game? Well, it'd be Dallas. Uh, Dallas because um, he, he, he was just phenomenal both in, in his ability on the field uh, but also off the field and so many people gravitated to him. Uh, I, I remember, but he did eat and drink too much. I remember one time outside the Western Suburbs Leagues Club, it was a rainy, pouring night and the little hot dog boy standing out the front in, being sheltered in the as the rain's pouring down. And I said to the fellow, little young bloke, you might as well go home, mate. There's um, there's only about seven people left in the club. <laughs> and he said, yeah, but one of them's <laughs> Dallas and he always buys five. <laughs> a smart boy. A smart boy. Ah, uh, dear. Let, let's finish on Tommy, Roy. Um, what was your fondest moment together? The fondest moment we ever had together it happened frequently when, particularly at the end, when he was very, very ill. And he would sit and he would look at me and a smile would come over his face and he'd say, Roy, they might get a lot more money these days. And then he'd look at me and he'd say, but they'll never, ever, ever have the time we had. He said that repeatedly, particularly towards the end. Although as though it was almost comforting him as he slowly slipped in, in the direction of death. Wonderful. Lovely remembering him, and we'll never forget Tommy. He'll always be a, a huge part of this club, um, and it's great that that stand is being named at, at Lidcombe Oval. Um, thank you so much for, for making the trip up here, Roy. It's been an you know, absolute pleasure and a privilege chatting to you. So um, 
I hope you've enjoyed this edition of Behind the Raw. We will do it again um, next week, same place, same time. We are doing a live podcast, though, uh, at the game Easter Monday against Parramatta Eels at Accor Stadium uh, for our members, and that will be recorded on the Monday before the game. Let's hope that we are yeah, in a good mood after that podcast and after the game. So uh, good luck to the boys uh, on Easter Monday, the next challenge for the West Tigers against Parramatta Eels. But uh, until next time, you know what to do. Show your stripes. Behind the wall, the official podcast of West Tigers.